Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, the Confluence Investment Management Podcast. Our guest today, the firm's chief market strategist, Bill O'Grady. During these podcasts, we address current geopolitical issues affecting investment strategies in a concise question and answer format. I'm Phil Adler, your moderator. Many of these discussions focus and expand on themes presented in the firm's weekly geopolitical report, as well as the daily comment and other research articles written by the firm's experts. You can access these reports on the front page of confluenceinvestment.com. It's an easy step to subscribe by email to any of these reports. Our talk today covers an important evolution that often occurs within societies and countries, one that has an impact on long-term investment strategy and one recognized as important by our firm, Confluence Investment Management. This is the ongoing tug-of-war between efficiency and equality within societies. Bill, is this a mainstream theory, uh, one recognized by a broad spectrum of economists and historians? It, it generally is, although it's not talked about a lot. The, the initial work came from a Nobel laureate economist by the name of Arthur Oaken who postulated that societies have to accept a trade-off between equality and efficiency. He wrote about this trade-off in a small book uh, published in the mid-1970s, titled, appropriately enough, Equality and Efficiency, uh, from what would now be considered a politically liberal position. At the time, it was rather mainstream. He was mainly writing to his era, which was mostly focused on equality. And what he was trying to explain was, yeah, there is a cost to biasing toward equality, which is the loss of efficiency. However, there's no evidence in Oaken's work that he viewed the trade-off as a cycle. This is my observation. I'm not sure Oaken would agree. The trade-off is widely accepted among economists, but the notion of a cycle is not. Let's start at the uh, efficiency end. What are the characteristics of an efficient society? An efficient society or a society in the midst of an efficiency cycle is one focused on expanding the supply side of the economy. The goal is to basically increase the amount of productive capacity in the economy. Policies to achieve that goal include low marginal tax rates for both corporations and individuals, the reduction of regulation, the expansion of trade, Globalization is fostered uh, with reductions in tariffs and quotas, and immigration is supported. You want to increase the number of workers available. All of these policies uh, will weaken organized labor. Overall, these policies tend to boost returns to those who hold capital and also reduce inflation. These characteristics seem pretty familiar to, to what we've experienced in the United States, at least in recent years. What are the characteristics of a society that leans toward equality? Well, economies in an equality cycle are focused on the demand side of the economy, or to put it another way, reducing the supply side of the economy. The goal is to freeze or reduce the productive capacity of the economy while boosting aggregate demand. So you get opposite policies. You see marginal tax rates, especially on capital and on high-income households, uh, are increased. You see an increase in regulation, regulations designed to ensure that jobs are protected. Uh, 
You start to see barriers to globalization. You restrain immigration. You increase tariffs and quotas. These policies will tend to favor organized labor. Overall, these policies tend to reduce the returns to capital holders and increase them to labor, but in the end will also increase inflation. Is this a tug of war that's faced by every society as it, as it evolves? I think so. You can see clear patterns in history where society vacillates over long periods between these two poles. Another thinker uh, who's seminal in this effort is, is a man named Peter Turchin. He shows cycles of equality and efficiency in U.S. history. Banco Milanovic uh, recently tweeted a chart showing similar patterns in Chile. You mentioned a moment ago that you tend to believe there are identifiable cycles, and not all economists buy in with that. But is there a broader agreement among economists that societies continually vacillate between these two poles? Well, the data, I think, support this notion. When I give public discussions of this concept, there is usually a question from the audience, often with someone from an engineering background, that looks at this and says, gosh, this looks like an optimization problem. In other words, we should be able to establish an intersection where we optimize between the two poles and stay there. That just doesn't exist in real life. How long do you estimate an equality or efficiency cycle normally lasts? Well, they usually run about 50 to 75 years. Now, Confluence Investment Management identifies inflation and investment as key factors that drive the cycle. Could you explain? Well, when a society is in its early stages of development, it usually engages in an efficiency cycle to prompt entrepreneurs to go out and build productive capacity necessary for development. These governments tend to apply efficiency policies as well. Over time, the spread between household incomes becomes so wide that a political reaction is generated. And uh, often by that point, capacity has, has outstripped the ability of the economy to consume everything that is produced. When this happens, you start to see deflation. Returns to capital paradoxically decline because there isn't enough demand in the economy to consume all the stuff that the entrepreneurs create. Uh, and, and one of the factors that actually assists in the swing to equality is widespread suffrage. Uh, when more people can vote, they tend to vote against uh, efficiency and they tend to vote for equality. At the other end, as an equality cycle matures, inflation tends to become a really big problem. Supply is constrained by regulation and high taxes and the lack of global integration. As inflation rages, policymakers are pushed to adopt efficiency policies which then start the cycle all over again. It seems the societies that exist at the ends of the poles both have flaws. In a nutshell, what are they? Well, societies at the end of an equality cycle are plagued by inefficiency and inflation. These economies tend to stagnate. Regulation hampers innovation. Restraints on immigration prevent new ideas and the overall drive of immigrants to benefit the economy. The lack of imports makes domestic firms lazy. Societies at the end of efficiency cycle become politically explosive. The have-nots rebel. The wealthy are seen as having too much political power. There is a widespread belief that the game is rigged. 
the cost of reform is borne by those lacking political power. So the yellow vest uh, situation in France or the recent uh, unrest in Chile is an example. Support for trade diminishes. Import competition is seen as benefiting capital and harming workers. Immigrants become to be seen as an enemy. Technology at some point becomes an enemy as well. Efficiency becomes a ploy to weaken the power of labor. New technology becomes a threat. Regulation is sought to constrain the introduction of new technology. As we ponder all these characteristics you've mentioned, it appears right now that the United States has been engaged since roughly the end of World War II, 75 years ago, in an efficiency cycle. Maybe I'm oversimplifying here, but it seems that this has been a period that's marked by less regulation, a weakening of organized labor uh, through the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, one marked by a trend toward more income inequality uh, as well. Is there a key piece of economic data that supports this trend? Well, what we have seen and the way we describe it is we think there was a quality cycle that ran from about 1932 with the election of Franklin Roosevelt to the middle of Jimmy Carter's term uh, in 1978. There were a couple of key pieces of legislation that marked the end of the equality cycle. Uh, One was uh, the Steggers Act. The Steggers Act deregulated railroads and one older listeners might remember prior to 1978 that all trains had a caboose. That caboose housed two to three uh, train workers that were completely superfluous. It had no, nothing to do mainly but play pinochle in that, in that car. After the Steggers Act, you started to see cabooses pile up in, uh, in rail yards, and eventually they were repurposed for things like restaurants and, and libraries and things like that. The other one was uh, a broader bill that deregulated transportation. So prior to that deregulation, flying was considered an elegant act. Uh, You got dressed up to fly. Meals we complained about were served. Uh, The stewardesses were pretty. The stewards were pretty. Everything was new. Now we have trailways, buses with, with wings, but it's a lot cheaper. Uh, That's what that deregulation did. Uh, We then have been in an efficiency cycle from the late 70s until now, and we are now beginning to see the signs, we think, of a new equality cycle that is evolving. And the data that supports this trend? The classic data is, is a simple income distribution. In 1978, the top 10% earnings, uh, the top 10% of households captured about 33.5% of national income. Last year, they captured just over 50%. So half of national income is now going to 10% of households. And that is usually the kind of thing you see through an efficiency cycle. You reward uh, the owners of capital and and the, the, the people who run businesses at the expense of everyone else. And as you can kind of think, if the bottom 90 feel like they're not participating, that becomes politically untenable. Let's focus on the dollar for a moment. Must there be a weakening of the dollar as the world's reserve currency as we move away from the efficiency cycle and toward the equality cycle? Well, the hegemonic role played is interesting. 
the U.S., as we've mentioned in earlier uh, podcasts, is, has this reserve currency role as the global importer of last resort. For the bottom 90% of households to continue to import all the things the world wanted to sell us during this efficiency cycle, the U.S. had to come up with a way to maintain their buying power. So what we saw uh, almost at that same time frame from the late 70s on, you started seeing a rapid accumulation of debt, household debt. Um, one of the anecdotes I like to mention is in, in the mid-70s when I was going to college, I, I worked 40 hours a week to pay my way through. And because I was working 40 hours a week, for some unknown reason, my local bank granted me a Bank America card. I was the only kid on my block to actually have his own credit card. Now, I had a $300 credit limit, so I was severely restrained. Mark that to the late 90s, mid-90s. You know, it was not uncommon to get five offers in your mailbox literally every day for, for credit cards. So there was this massive expansion of, of consumer credit that culminated in the mid-90s with the uh, increase in home ownership. Uh, and, of course, that all came unraveling in, in 2007, 2008. To, to frame it, household debt relative to after-tax income rose from 64.5% in the early 80s to a, almost 129% uh, just before the financial crisis. We became extremely levered as a side effect of the hegemonic role. So the debt became... Unsustainable. Yes, that's that's it. Households simply could not continue to roll over that debt. Uh, another side effect is that we have seen continually lower and lower interest rates in each business cycle because the debt level is simply still too high. So, is a weaker dollar necessary at this point? We think it will be. The trouble is, the rest of the world doesn't want to give it to us, and so. What we think will have to happen is something akin to the break that we saw with Bretton Woods, where the U.S. will enforce a policy of weaker dollar, uh, probably by giving the Federal Reserve a new mandate um, and through fiscal expansion in order to, to effectively push the dollar lower as a way of shifting the burden of adjustment to foreigners. Uh, are there other events that must happen before we settle into an equality cycle marked by a weaker dollar? Well, sadly, um, it's, it's always hard when you're going through them. I, I wrote a, a weekly geopolitical series uh, a little while ago called Inflex on inflection points. And the problem with inflection points is that historians will tell you at this moment, this is what happened. And then you actually go read the research. Well, things were kind of changing in front of that. We would argue that this, the early phases of this equality cycle began with 2008, that we have seen a steady opposition to trade, a steady opposition to immigration. The tech industry that used to be everyone's darling has now become everyone's enemy. Uh, these are all elements of the, the equality cycle, but the cataclysmic event was the 2008 financial crisis, in our opinion. That's what we think historians 50 years from now will be pointing to as, as the seminal event. 
And now we're seeing talk of expanded government services in the current political uh, arena. There, there's talk of Medicare for all. I mean, that's an expanded government service. And, and, and we see in today's headlines rising opposition to technology as well. Yes. Well, there's another element of this that's, that's worth uh, touching on before we close. Um, every one of these quality and efficiency cycles tends to have an, an intellectual champion, so to speak. Um, it, it, when, when we had the first e efficiency cycle from 1870 into the 1930s, it was classical economics. Just get the government out of the way, let entrepreneurs do what they need. And we were starting to see some pullback or moderation from that really with Teddy Roosevelt you had the introduction of a of a of an income tax you had child labor laws things like that but they were really designed to temper that efficiency cycle not flip it uh, we saw it flip with with Roosevelt and what the intellectual uh, roadmap for Roosevelt was Keynesianism and then when we flip to any, another efficiency cycle under Carter-Reagan, the uh, economics that justified that was supply-side economics. And we are thinking that what's going to justify this one is modern monetary theory. Well, that's a subject we might explore further on a future podcast. Um, I had one other question, and you, you've mentioned the chance of political unrest or unrest in societies as we approach the end of a cycle. Can we anticipate more of this? And, and how might the U.S. avoid this problem? Well, I, I don't think there's an avoidance. I think there's a mitigation. And it you will usually see a couple things happen. One is that you will see more government involvement in the economy, more physical investment more roads, maybe we'd see broadband expanded through either the government paying for it or the government subsidizing it. One of the ways that we've done this in the past is to grant monopoly status to a company if they do a, if they provide a public good. So universal phone service from, uh, from the phone company was in order to, for them to do that, they were given monopoly. Uh, they were exempted from monopoly regulation, for example. So you could easily see things like uh, regulated, mandated jobs. Yes, it's a driverless truck, but you got to have a couple Teamsters in the front, you know, and they may be there ostensibly for safety reasons, but they probably become very well read uh, and maybe listen to our podcasts. Uh, expanded work rules uh, could be part of that as well. Um, and, and it really is designed to, to protect jobs. Uh, so it'd be both a combination of um, the government doing things directly and then shaping how the economy works uh, through regulation of, of, of labor. And investors can expect? It's not exactly great for investors. Uh, multiple P multiples tend to decline. Inflation tends to rise. Now, that being said, it's important to note that the 1960s were really, really good for stocks. And you can have bull markets uh, in, in these periods as well, uh, but it's probably not the same stocks. Uh, this, this bull market has been a darling of technology. You know, the large 
conglomerate companies may become the darlings of the next one. We want to remind our listeners as we conclude that at Confluence Investment Management, we pay a lot of attention to significant identifiable trends as our experts strive to make the best choices for investment dollars. Our bottom line in these discussions is always investment strategy and how world events may influence this strategy. This has been the Confluence of Ideas featuring Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. Our report is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. Our website is confluenceinvestment.com. You can find us on Twitter at Confluence IM.